The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawbox. Let's give you some headlines. The uncertainty continuing. Stocks across Asia slip amid doubts over a phase one trade deal after President Trump threatens to boost tariffs on China. I have a good relationship with China. We'll see what happens. But I'm very happy right now. If we don't make a deal with China, I'll just raise the tariffs even higher. The U.S. Senate unanimously passes a bill in support of Hong Kong protesters, prompting swift criticism from China. U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn face off ahead of the December 12th general election, with Brexit at the centre of the first leadership debate. We certainly will come out on January the 31st, because we have a deal that, as I say, is oven ready. It's ready to, to go. Within three months, negotiate a credible leave option with the European Union and within six months, put that to a referendum of the British people. And a retail wreck. U.S. retail stocks take it on the chin amid weak results from forecasts from Kohl's and Home Depot ahead of the key holiday shopping season. Plus, ECB preparing to issue its twice yearly financial stability report amid a slowdown in Europe and push for fiscal stimulus. Here from the ECB Vice President, Luis de Guindos, 1315 CET. Well, good morning. Let's take you to some of the price action from Wall Street overnight. As you can see, mixed end, mixed closing session for the three indices, but a lot of activity in yesterday's trading session. Let's start with the Dow. You can see they ended the session at around 27,900. We briefly broke through new intraday highs through that 28,000 mark before coming off towards the end of the day, down about three-tenths of a percentage point. A lot of the declines were led by the retail stocks. We'll get into that shortly, but Home Depot, one of the biggest drags on the Dow on S&P, that stock was down more than 4 5% yesterday on a very dour outlook for the holiday season and going into 2020. So a lot of focus on retail. Also the energy sector, weakness in oil yesterday. Uh, S&P's uh, biggest loser was the SPNY ETF that was down about 2.6%, actually the largest decline in seven weeks for the oil sector. So again, energy leading some of the declines in yesterday's trading. Both retail and energy acting as somewhat of a dampener on the moves we had. But of course, intraday, all three majors did continue to make intraday highs. And you can see actually Nasdaq did indeed make another record high, up about a quarter of a percentage point by the end of the day. Also not helping a change in tone when it comes to those all important trade talks between China and the U.S. President Trump saying that they will look to raise tariffs further on China if they do not agree to a deal that both sides like. So again, the rhetoric seems to be deteriorating somewhat. That set the tone for a negative Asian session as well. But I want to talk a little bit further about what happened in the retail space yesterday. As I mentioned, Home Depot, one of the big decliners on the S&P and on the Dow, down about 5%. But then also we had Kohl's down almost 20% yesterday as well. Very disappointing third quarter earnings, very disappointing outlook. 
We're heading into the holiday season. Remember, we had those retail sales numbers on Friday, uh, better than expectations for the month. But again, people are pointing to the fact that spending on big ticket items seems to be dropping. Perhaps could be a warning signal ahead for the U.S. economy. But this is a picture for retail. And obviously, consumer spending, a very big driver of the U.S. economy. Gap down 3%. Nordstrom down more than 6%. Macy's 11%. So real heavyweight names here coming off in the U.S. Certainly something to watch out for. But let's switch and talk about Asian markets as well. As I mentioned, uh, somewhat of a negative tone prevailing uh, when it comes to those trade talks and commentary out of the president uh, suggesting that tariffs could go up even further. Further, we've got Shenzhen Composite around 0.4% weaker. Shanghai Composite in China down about half a percentage point weaker. Hang Seng continued unrest unfolding in Hong Kong, and that continues to hit that index. And of course, Nikkei as well down about seven tenths of a percentage point. Also not helping, I should say as well, is yesterday the Senate in the U.S. passed a legislation aimed at protecting human rights in Hong Kong. Overnight, we heard from China saying that they are condemning that measure and that attempts by outside forces to interfere in Hong Kong's affairs are doomed to failure. So you've got a double track here. It's not just about the trade war, but also about the developments with respect to Hong Kong that investors should keep an eye on as well. That's one of the reasons why these Asian indices are also trading in the negative. Uh, let's switch and talk about European opening calls. Yesterday, uh, we ended up slightly in the red for the stock 600. I think it's its fourth negative session in a row. And actually, the picture is slightly negative as well. Today, we've got the Italian index down about 60 points. Kekaron, Zetradax also leaning slightly towards the negative territory. And then UK, FTSE 100 down about five points as well. has been a sort of a teetering around that 7,300 mark. And of course, all eyes on the political developments. We had that all-important debate yesterday between uh, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. We'll get into that into the show. All right. Thank you very much indeed for that, Shimano. Uh, President Trump has threatened to hike tariffs on Chinese imports if Beijing does not agree to a trade deal. The two sides have been struggling to complete a phase one agreement since October, whatever a phase one agreement is. I still have my questions. However, it wasn't all doom and gloom from the U.S. leader. China's going to have to make a deal that I like. If they don't, that's it. OK, uh, well, I'm very happy with China right now. They're paying us Billions and billions will be over $100 billion in the not-too-distant future. China never gave us 10 cents. And I told you, I gave a lot of money to the farmers. I'm helping people that need help because China is paying us tremendous. And they're paying for it. Those tariffs are not paid by us. Those tariffs are paid because they're devaluing their currency and pouring cash into their economy. Their supply chains are being killed. And I said, they had the worst year in 57 years. Now, with that being said, uh, I have a good relationship with China. We'll see what happens. But I'm very happy right now. And if we don't make a deal with China, I'll just raise the tariffs even higher. Uh, speaking to CNBC at East Tech West, Victor Gao, who is the vice president for the Center for China and Globalization, said Beijing believes the U.S. should be the first to blink in the trade war. The trade war or the tariff war is the wrong war to fight. It's the wrong war for the United States as well as for China. And no one, either China or the United States, can win the trade war. Now, secondly, for President Trump or his close confidants or advisors in Washington to expect that the trade war or the tariff war can force China to kneel down and kowtow to the United States is completely indulging in fantasy. China will not surrender to the United States as far as the trade war is concerned. As a matter of fact, there is a sense of determination in Beijing 
that it is the United States that need to have an end of the trade war now, mostly because of domestic political considerations for President Trump. And China is in no sense of urgency for a quick wrap up of the trade war. Well, speaking of China, the central bank has cut its benchmark lending rates in a bid to boost its economy. The one-year loan prime rate now stands at 4.15%. It is the third time the LPR has been cut since the rate became the official benchmark for the PBOC in August. Uh, let's bring in Ian Shepherdson, the chief economist from Pantheon uh, Macroeconomics, who joins us for the next hour or so, uh, just to pick up on the China rate cut. I mean, it doesn't sound like a very big cut, if I'm honest, five basis points. How much of an impact is that actually going to have on the economy? And do you read this as the, the state actually beginning to take more measures into their own hands than the fact that they've cut so many times in the last couple of months. Yeah, they have. And they, they need to do more. I mean, China's fundamental problem is that compared to a few years ago, it gets a much smaller bang for the buck when it eases. This is a massively over-indebted economy, and that debt is weighing on the economy uh, increasingly. So every time they ease, they get a bit less than they used to. So they need to do more. Uh, the leading indicators, some of them anyway, have stabilized. So that's a good sign. But I think if you'd asked Chinese officials a year ago, you know, where would we be now? I think they'd have been much more optimistic than has actually come through in the hard data. So it'll be, it's too much to say they're panicking. But I think they are getting increasingly concerned that the push that they expected just hasn't really materialized but yet. It seems like the response so far has been a drip feed approach. There's it been has. a little bit yeah. of monetary stimulus, a little bit of fiscal stimulus. And now all of a sudden you've had a series of incremental rate cuts uh, from, from the month of August. It does appear as though they're pressing their foot a little bit on the accelerator now. Yeah, because they're disappointed. They, they hope to be in a better position by now. Uh, they were expecting, I think, at this point that there'd be a much clearer upturn across the, the broad economy. And the trade war with the US and, and the, the failure to find any resolution there is not helping. But their fundamental problem is a massively over-indebted private economy. And yeah. they're pushing on this string. And, and as we all know, that sometimes that works quickly, sometimes it doesn't. But for, in China's case, uh, the pushing uh, it now has to get harder because they need to generate faster growth next year. There's no question the economy is weaker than the official data show already. And that means that they're now starting to get rather more concerned. So the drip feed continues. I'm pretty sure we'll see further easing over the course of the next few months. Um, the Chinese want a longer-term approach to their economic development. We know that they have a longer-term view of history as well. Um, by creating so much short-term and medium-term debt, are they threatening the entire medium- to longer-term project? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they're in real danger of becoming the, the next Japan, the combination of massive uh, indebtedness, dysfunctional financial system, very unfavorable demographics. Yeah, they're, they're, doing, uh, they're doing all sorts of things which are storing up big problems for the future. So their trend growth rate is just slowing, slowing, slowing. What is their real growth rate? Oh, it's a lot less in the official numbers, but who knows? Yeah, the six handle at the moment. So uh, it's certainly less than that. But the, the danger is that it's going to keep slowing. Now, the trade thing makes it worse in the short term, but as you say, the medium term is really what they, they, they fundamentally care about. I mean, China has this perpetual conflict that the Communist Party wants to be in power for 100 years, but it has to be in power tomorrow as well. Mm. And so there's this constant need to keep short-term growth up, uh, and the danger is that that is now really threatening their longer-term picture. I mean, if you look at the Chinese banking system and, and the over-leverage in the economy, it, it makes the US in 2008 look barely visible on the chart. That's not a comfortable place to be if you want things to continue growing strongly for the long term. How worried should we be about this? I mean, we've got these enormous debt levels in the West that 
people like me get ignored about. I'd imagine just listening to your tone, people like you get ignored as well about these huge debt levels mm. and about these growing debt levels and the IIF figure. Re- well, let me, I've got the IIF figure here. Let me just reiterate it from last week. 255 trillion US dollars. Huge number, but we can put that into debt to GDP if people want the context as well. So by worrying about Chinese debt levels, are we missing the point? Well, I think Chinese debt is, is the right thing to worry about because if it weren't for the debt, then their stimulus would have been more effective by now. So, uh, yeah, the, the, private, the, the rise in private sector indebtedness, and, and remember in, in the US, for example, in the corporate sector, there's more debt now as a share of GDP than there was in 2008. Now, admittedly, it's different debt, but nonetheless, there's, there's more of it. The corporate sector is more highly leveraged than it was in 2008. So I do worry about this, but of course, interest rates are extremely low everywhere, negative in Europe and, and very low in the US. So we don't have a debt service crisis uh, anywhere in the, in the developed world at the moment, but we do have a, a debt burden, which to me is fundamentally a problem. Uh, just a quick one. What matters more for the rest of the world, the absolute level of growth in China or the rate of change? Because it definitely has moderated over the last couple of months or so. But so long as it hangs in at around 6% for the rest of the world, what are the implications? Well, what, what the rest of the world cares about is, is seeing some signs that the stimulus is starting to work. I mean, this, what's weighing on Europe uh, in particular, given that Europe's manufacturing, especially Germany, is so oriented toward China, is this idea that China's growth isn't even turning around, isn't, isn't responding to the stimulus. And that's scaring investors and, uh, and scaring markets in Europe. So we need to see a, a positive scared? delta. Who's scared? I'm sorry. Well, I, I'm, come on, let, let's well, do it. I know we're going to go to a break. <laughs> Who's scared? I, I see, all I see, what did the Dow cross this week? 28,000. Ah, yes. And we talked, I mean, you were doing your, your excellent summary of the markets at the wall, but I, we failed to point out the, the huge, huge move we saw uh, on this, down two points. We were down two points, despite this yes. horrendous retail picture, which is yeah. a barometer, a, a prism, a window uh, on, on the, the consumer. Economy. We were yeah. down two points on this. Yeah, free Who's money? scared? Free money, free no money works wonders. Well, you can, be, you can be scared, but still buy the stocks because the money's free. Oh, the Unlove Rally. Yeah. We'll come oh, back absolutely. to you. Thank you very much. All right. Ian Shepardson, the chief economist from Pantheon at Macroeconomics. You stay with us. All right. Concerns over U.S.-China trade deal were compounded when the U.S. Senate passed a bill supporting human rights in Hong Kong. China condemned the move and urged the U.S. to stop interfering in internal affairs. It comes as the police siege at the Hong Kong Polytechnic University enters its fourth day. Martin Song was on the ground and filed this report. Take a look at below me here. This crippled monster used to be Hong Kong's cross harbor tunnel, 14 lanes and the main thoroughfare, the main artery uh, by which or through which millions of Hong Kongers would get to and fro between Hong Kong Island and Kowloon every single day. But it's been inoperable, closed, not usable for weeks, if not months now, because it's been, I don't want to use the word vandalized, that's too loaded and judgmental a word, but certainly trashed by uh, the protesters, anti-government protesters uh, here uh, in Hong Kong. That could change soon, though. If you noticed uh, just a few seconds ago, road repair crews have been very busy, and about half, seven of the 14 lanes have already been cleared by debris. Now, this is important because Hong Kong officials earlier today said that they want this tunnel or tunnels like this, as well as roads that have been closed or rerouted because of their protest to reopen as soon as possible, which kind of begs the question, well, what about the protesters? Include the kids still stuck behind the walls of Hong Kong Polytechnic. The siege is now into its fourth day. Well, by our count, uh, official numbers uh, put the kids left in there at about 100. By our count, though, there are probably less than 50 of them left. So the siege could be withering. 
But even if the situation resolves itself, the broader crisis that's engulfed Hong Kong for coming to six months now, that may have more to run simply because Hong Kong now officially is caught, stuck, smack in the middle of the U.S.-China trade war. China earlier today reacting very angrily to the U.S. Senate's decision overnight to pass the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. This is important. Why? Because it would ensure, if it becomes law, that Hong Kong retains its privileged trading status with the U.S. In other words, that it continues to be insulated from U.S. tariffs on China, which incidentally are threatening to go up further, higher, come December 15th. So even if this mini-crisis at Hong Kong Poly resolves itself, the broader crisis in Hong Kong may have room to run, and the city, the economy, and its people potentially could continue to suffer. CNBC, Hong Kong, I'm Martin So. And also coming off the show, we'll cross live to the Russia calling forum in Moscow for an exclusive interview with VCB Bank President Andrei Kostin. And the podcast today is, is quite magnificent, quite frankly. You've got Ian Shepperton talking about buying the market to the hill and yet being terrified of the market at the same time. You shouldn't miss that one. It's, uh, it's on CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all over the place as well. It's plastered all over the podosphere. Uh, you can listen to it. And for our viewers and our listeners, stick around for a little bit more. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Uh, Russia unlikely to commit to further oil production cuts at next month's OPEC Plus summit. That's according to Reuters. The Russian government argues its Siberian oil wells could explode if they halted during freezing winter conditions. But Reuters sources say Moscow is expected to back existing agreements to curb output, particularly with demand expected to wane next year. Uh, Brent prices traded low on the news and are down almost 4% since the start of the week. Now, Russian equities are amongst the world's top performers this year amid low valuations and a strengthening currency. Who says they're low valuations? Just asking. Anyway, uh, dividend yields are also more than twice as high as those in other emerging markets. Dan is at the Russia Calling Forum in Moscow. And Dan, let me just pick you up. And I know you've got a guess now, but but we says my read said low valuations, uh, historically low valuations for a good reason as well. That's exactly right, Steve. And let's not forget low interest rates, which have certainly helped to propel equity markets here as well. Steve, as you pointed out, we're live in Moscow. And who better to check the pulse of Russian business and investor sentiment than the president and chairman of VTB Bank, Mr. Andre Kostin. He joins me live now. Mr. Kostin, welcome back to CNBC. Great to have you. Um, first of all, you know, we hear about global economic headwinds and how they're rising. And surely Russia is not immune. What's the read within the bank at the moment as we come into 2020? And are some of these global economic fears being overblown? You know, I think the key word to describe Russian economy today is stability. We have, uh, we lowered out substantial inflation. It's uh, around 3.5%. Uh, we have a very good performance of the stock market. It increased by 35% at the beginning of the year. 
we have many other very solid uh, and uh, macroeconomic uh, results. For example, uh, in the first 10 months of this uh, year, the surplus of Russian budget is 3.5 percent. By the end of the year, we expect 1.8. It still is quite unusual for any economy in the world. What we lack today is a fast economic growth. The forecast for this year is 1.3% only, in comparison with the last year, 2.3%. Of course, Russia is an open economy, and uh, what's happening in the world and the slower economic growth uh, in China, in the world, in Europe, actually, affect Russian economy. But we also have our uh, domestic problems, I would say, the uh, probably lack of uh, investments and uh, a lower domestic demand. And that's what this conference is all about, attempting to attract, to, attempting to attract uh, those investors. Tell me, though, when it comes to the outlook, do you think that weaker interest rates here in Russia, the banks cut rates four times this year, do you think lower rates are going to be impacting your net interest margins and profitability in the year ahead? It is. I mean, uh, of course, uh, uh, low interest rate doesn't help to bring uh, maybe investors. But uh, on the other hand, of course, it helps to uh, bring more uh, investment inside Russia. And actually, the access and the price of the loans are cheaper. And uh, still, uh, at this uh, rate of 6.5%, that is a, a good margin for the Russian banks. Russian banks have the margin of around 3-4%, even higher which would not be the case if we would have, let's say, a negative interest rate like it's in Europe. And uh, though we also feel a negative effect of the interest in negative interest rate uh, on the euro, for example, because Russian company in the process of de-dollarization moved away from dollar to, to um, um, euro. And now, you know, they really have to think twice uh, because of this. Are rates going lower in Russia next year? Well, we expect, I, I think to a very big extent, uh, the Central Bank already used this um, uh, potential but we yes we think we believe that with uh, inflation around 3.5% that could go down for another half percent maybe or 1% within the next year or so the big interest here in russia at least in the equity market has been on dividends as well can you give us any guidance on what these lower rates and the economic outlook mean for your own payouts coming into next year because i know you've had to scale back to meet basel 3 requirements well, this year is is good for for vtb we expect the record profit of around uh, 200 billion plus minus 5% maybe no more but uh, the problem for us is of course the uh, capital adequacy because uh, the introduction of Basel III required a lot of uh, capital uh, and as you know we are under sectoral sanctions we can go to the to the to the market from this point of view, our profit is the only source of our capitalization. And that's why, for the last, for example, last year we paid only 15% of our profit rather than 50, uh, which was uh, our general policy, actually, and, and actually a request of our major shareholder, the government. This year, we think that if there's no any additional burden on capital, uh, we, can, we can pay 50% uh, to investors. Uh, unless, as I said, there's some, something which might affect our profit on the very last, uh, last stage. I wanted to ask you more broadly about the government's push here in Russia and the policy measures that are being made to stoke growth. When you look at the outlook, there are a number of concerns that we've been talking about. Uh, for example, the World Bank says weak investment, slow growth in exports, oil production cuts and a hike in the VAT mean that this economy is only going to grow at 1% next year. Are you encouraged by the efforts that the yeah, government you, is making? You know, my expectation is, um, I, I, I believe in, in the new government policy, like in the new Roosevelt course in, in the late 20s, early 30s, probably, because 
uh, we announced the so-called national projects uh, strategy. It means that uh, uh, there's expectation that within the next five years, uh, the investment will, will be invested in the Russian uh, key uh, sectors like uh, digitalization, uh, like transport infrastructure, like education, around $380 billion. And two-thirds will come from the government, and one-third should come from the private investors. And I think if we manage uh, to effectively uh, use this money and this program, I think we can reach a much higher economic growth uh, above 3% even, but it's based on the, uh, on mainly on the, on the government investment, plus in addition, of course, a further improvement uh, of investment climate, that, that's right. The other issue that you have is that the firm is also operating under US and uh, European sanctions. When President Trump first came to power, there was great hope that this might mean an improvement in the relationship between the US and Russia. Do you see any scope for an, a, a further improvement, perhaps next year or in the coming years? I, and what's the outlook for I, sanctions I'm here? Because this is a big issue for you. Yeah, I'm not the big expert in politics, but my uh, expectation that we, we, we should talk about this maybe only after elections uh, in the United States. Because now uh, America is going into the new cycle, a political cycle, we'll focus on, uh, on elections, there'll be a lot, a lot of fights, which already w we saw over the last three years since uh, Mr. Trump came to power, uh, or did he, or did he come to power? power? Do you think he's going to stay in power? <laughs> I don't know, uh, it looks like uh, at the moment he has good chances, but I don't know, again, uh, and um, uh, we should expect some more specific policy on part of the United States, because I think uh, after the results of the new report, uh, the anti-Russian, uh, uh, at least uh, anti-Russian stance somehow weakened, but but it might revive, it might be revived during the election campaign. We don't know. It is very unfortunate because uh, we we want a good relationship with the United States. You know, our president is always ready to talk to Mr. Trump. Uh, you know, other uh, officials from from the administration. But um, I'm afraid that unless uh, uh, there will be more uh, precise uh, policy on the part of the American administration, and for this, he should somehow probably agree agree with the with the Senate and with the Congress. That's my opinion. Very very quickly, biggest risk event in 2020, what is it? Uh, as always, I think uh, for Russia, there is a, a lower oil prices. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.